Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick, and this is episode number 10 of the Mandolins and Beer Podcast, brought to you in part by my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe. Here we go with episode number 10 of the Mandolins and Beer Podcast, as I said at the top. Sponsored in part by the Mandolin Cafe. Thanks so much to Scott for sponsoring these episodes. I really, really appreciate it. It's an honor to say it every week. So thank you to Scott. Thank you to all the people who have been listening. Um, It's overwhelming. Uh, Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Please keep spreading the word out there on the social media. Uh, If this is your first time listening, hit subscribe. That would be great. Um, thank you to Matt Flinner uh, for being on this episode. I'm a huge fan, huge fan. And he took the time right before he was heading over to Alan Bybee's uh, mandolin camp up in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, about an hour and a half from where I live. I wish I could have made it this year. Uh, and congratulations to Alan Bybee, 2019 IBMA Mandolin Player of the Year Award. It's actually shocking to me that this is the first time he's won it. Uh, and I'm interviewing Alan uh, tomorrow or Thursday for a future episode. So, That's going to be great. Um, And speaking of future episodes, Jake Jolliffe will be on, Mike Marshall, John Reichman. I'm interviewing him in two weeks, and Sharon Gilchrist as well. Uh, We're going to be doing an interview here in a few weeks. So lots of great stuff coming up, and I still have a ton of great guests lined up who have agreed to do it. So this this has been exciting. Um, But honestly, I couldn't do it without everybody here listening. Um, So thank you. Another huge congratulations for uh, David Benedict. David's book, uh, his transcription book for the Golden Angle, he's beat like, I don't know, like his fifth or sixth Kickstarter goal on this thing. I'm kidding. It's not that many, but it's at least he's headed towards like number three already. He's going to release an extra track from the Golden Angle. Um, so that Kickstarter, I think, is still live. You should go to it and support it. I supported it. I'm excited to get the uh, to get the transcription book myself. So congratulations, David. And, uh, and thanks again for being the first guest ever on the Mandolins of Beer podcast. Uh, this week's sponsor, as well as the Mandolin Cafe, is Scott Enlow Woodworking. Uh, Scott's back for another week. Man, he makes some great stuff. He's a, he's a mandolin player. He's a boat builder. He's incredibly talented. Um, if you haven't seen the pictures of the stools yet, go to mandolinsandbeer.com. I've got them on. Um, they're right under the link for the, the episode each week. And also, you can go to Scott's, uh, Scott's Boat Works. S-C-O-T-T-S, Boatworks, all one word, dot com, or Scott Enloe Woodworking, E-N-L-O-E. Scott makes these stools with the finest hardwoods. They're detailed with inlaid strings, bridge, tailpiece, and sound holes. One-of-a-kind stools as unique as your own picking style. Add that special look to your practice or performance space or somebody else's practice or performance space. The holidays are coming up upon us, and what better gift to get your favorite mandolin player? Um, so thanks again to Scott, man. I really appreciate it, you guys. Be sure to check out his website and his Facebook page. And also be sure to check out my website, mandolinsandbeer.com. Go to the merch page if you want to support the podcast. I have shirts, koozies, stickers. Although, again, the best way to support this, the cheapest way, it's free. Just hit subscribe, tell your friends. That's what really means the most. If it wasn't for all you people coming and listening to this podcast every week, I wouldn't be getting such incredible guests. Um, so... Thank you guys so much. Oh, yeah, and hats. I've gotten a few emails about hats. Hats will be coming soon. I've been wearing one uh, that Matt uh, from Five Star 
printing and printing plus up in Petoskey, Michigan. It's a lot of peas to say. Um, he sent me one, and I love it. But I think I'm uh, I'm trying to decide exactly what style I want to go with. So I'll have that in the next few weeks. And um, also on that website, uh, there's a link to the Spotify playlist. All the songs that we talk about and I play samples of, I make a Spotify playlist and change it up every week and add these songs to it. Um, this week, however, there were two that are not available uh, on Spotify. But if you go to YouTube, I'm sure you can track them down. One is Sam Bush and Alan Mundy together again for the first time. And then also I had a, uh, um, a CD from years and years ago, a bunch of mandolin players playing. And um, well, you're here in the podcast. It's, uh, it's awesome to hear. Um, I play a little track from that, too. So anyway, thanks so much. And here we go. Let's get into the podcast with Matt Flinner. Cheers, everybody. All right, now I'd like to welcome to the podcast, Matt Flinner. Matt, how are you doing today? I'm great, Dan. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for, for taking the time to be on the podcast. I know you have a busy schedule coming up here. Oh, it's great, great. Thanks so much for having me on this. This yeah. is uh, That sounds like a pretty uh, exciting series you have going here. Yeah, so yeah thanks, man. It's been, knock on wood, so far so good. You know, it helps having great guests <laughs> like yourself uh, you know, for people who want to listen to it, as opposed to maybe just me rambling about mandolin for an hour. <laughs> so, right. Well, I could do that too. Yeah, <laughs> so, we could do that together. Perfect. And you're going to be kind of up in my neck of the woods. You're going to be in Myrtle Beach here pretty quick at Alan Bybee's camp, correct? Yeah, actually leaving tomorrow for that. It'll be my first time down there at that. It seems like Alan and I have been teaching a lot together at various camps lately, and. Uh, um, but I haven't been to his his camp yet. I know it's it's got to be a beautiful spot down there by the beach so i'm looking forward to it yeah it looks beautiful and i've had a few friends who have gone to it and um they love it and go every year and i wish uh you're talking a little bit beforehand i wish i had time to to go up there because it seems like an amazing amazing experience so one of these one of these years i'll get up there and you so you teach a lot of camps correct well it depends i mean it lately it's kind of been that way i guess there's these camps keep popping up you know yeah and um yeah, this year it seems like I've done well. I remember counting how many I would do this year, and it seems like it's about seven, which is a lot for me. So, uh, but they're they're great. They're always fun. I would, for us instructors, it's uh, an added perk is that we get to see uh, a lot of friends that we don't normally get to play. Like if it's you know a mandolin camp, I never get to play with Alan Bybee, <laughs> right? You know, right. Unless cause we're both playing mandolin, <laughs> and. Um, so just the chance to play with with some musicians that we admire and 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 love to hang out with and play with is uh, is always fun and I and I do love teaching too so it's yeah it's been it's been a good year. That's awesome. What kind of experience level do you get with with players that go to these camps as far as uh, students? Is it kind of all over the map? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, kind of all. I mean, it's probably pretty solidly intermediate, I suppose, if you had to pin it down. There's mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of folks take this up. Um, it seems like, you know, later in, in life after, uh, they finish their career and, Hey, I want to do something musical and take up the mandolin. There's quite a few, you know, kind of retirees that, that, um, are interested in learning. And then, uh, we get some kids that of course learn pretty fast, so, <laughs> yeah. um, tend to, you know, and, and, um, and then you get some, some folks who've been playing maybe semi-professionally for for a while that want to just pick up some, some ideas of, you know, where to go next. So mm-hmm. it, it is, it is, 
pretty all over the map, yeah. Yeah, that's great, though. Well, that's I think that's the great thing about the mandolin, too, is that, um, you know, a, all over the map, like beginners, intermediate people, people who are even more advanced, there's always something to learn from someone. And, and, these, yes. the, and, and this community um, is a great community to do that. And, you know, there's these, these camps are, they just seem incredible. And then, and then, like you said, the ability, I think I just saw on YouTube, I'm not sure if it was a recent clip, but um, you and uh, Joe K. Walsh doing some, some no. playing um, out there on there. And, it, right. it, you know, I think it must be new because I think he was playing his, his new Gilchrist. He was just on the, I just interviewed him a couple of weeks ago as well, but it was incredible. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That must've been up at Mandolin Camp North uh, where we played together back in April, I guess. Oh, so okay. Yeah. Another, you know, another, another great player I got to play with. It's, it's always fun. Yeah. Yeah. But I always keep coming back to, you know, every time I teach, it seems like I realize, oh yeah, you know, going through these fundamentals is really good for me <laughs> too. And I, supposedly been playing for you know decades i guess and and but i keep coming back to um some real basics and and uh so i I make sure i teach that to any any level player that you know let's at least warm up with something that will address something in the picking hand or you know and and uh i've learned a lot from from teaching and just it's a reminder that wherever we're at ability wise you know i keep coming back to to the basics and find it helpful. Yeah, well, and I think that's refreshing to hear for all players because, again, even myself, like I'd never taken a music lesson in my life until a few years ago, and I've been playing mandolin for for a long time at that point. But then I just once I started doing it for a living, I figured like I probably should maybe figure out what it is that I'm doing wrong because you know you just you, you just hit these speed bumps and plateaus all the time. And and one of the things I got all out of the, the first lesson I took, which was with um uh, Jake Jolif. And which was intimidating enough as it was. And then to, to find out that, you know, we're going through all these things and, you know, he's like showing me these practice techniques and slow tempos on BPM. And, you know, like just to know that guys like Jake or you still go back to fundamentals, you never stop working on those things. And that's what makes you guys such great players. And, and I think people just want to race to being able to play the crazy fast licks forgetting that oh yeah yeah that, you know there's a there's a track to get there there really is no button except just work at it yeah. a little bit every day and we want to we want to play faster than we should we want to you know slowing things down is really important and you can you want to have substance behind what you play i think you know you want to have things feel solid and, and in control and when you play you know it's fine to play that hot stuff but it just sounds so much better if you've got, if you've been playing slow and, and kind of working your way toward it and have a, a solid uh, foundation underneath it. Yeah. And it, it, it helps. And we, we work a lot on rhythm, you know, of course, and that's, that's just so often overlooked. It seems like when you're starting out and, and just wanting to plow ahead and, and playing, you know, in a groove and playing with other players, I don't know. I just, I, I feel like, you know, I'd rather listen to something that just feels good rhythmically more and more than than something that maybe has a lot of notes in it. It just it it feels so nice to. I mean, this music is all dance music originally. You know, right, right. Grass music was coming out of old time traditions, and this is all dance tradition. Um, and and uh, that's that's kind of important to remember. I think that you know, it's the groove is where it really should start. 
So it's, 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 if that feels solid, everybody's happy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I play in a, my, my main band is a trio, and I'm way more content just doing chops through verses and choruses as opposed to, I feel like every time I stop out to take a fill, um, it just takes away mm-hmm. from the song. Like the whole groove <laughs> of the song right. is now gone. So I'm way more content to, you know, I mean, every now and again, I guess I'll do some tremolo things in a slow song, but I really just love the rhythmic movement. I get my, I get plenty of time to solo playing three hours a night with these guys. I don't need to fill every, every between every line of words with notes, you know, but some people do it and and they're amazing, but I don't know. Well, and if those notes feel just as good rhythmically as the chop, you know, then everything, I think, I feel like, you know, we should be able to lead the band if need be, whether we're chopping or playing lead. Mm Mm-hmm. Lead, be able to lead the band rhythmically, and that should be true of hopefully everybody in the band could, you know what I mean, sort of lead rhythmically when necessary, and not be relying just on the bass player or whatever it is. Oh, absolutely. Or that's to me, that's the goal is that we're all, or at least that's when it can feel really free. Um, like if for my trio, it's probably similar to yours in instruments, I suppose. Mm-hmm. With, you know, mandolin, guitar, and bass. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. And. Um, if we're all able to kind of step up and, uh, I don't know, sort of help the rhythm when needed or just be able to, you know, <laughs> kind of control the flow of, of rhythm when needed, then everybody's kind of more free to do those fills or whatever it might be. Yeah. Do you have somebody who you, um, that you look to rhythm wise when you, when you think of really good rhythm, maybe even outside of maybe a mandolin player or even not a mandolin player that you listen to as far as being influenced for that? Yeah. Well, there's. I always think of Sam Bush, who is the most probably commanding rhythm player or mandolin player. Period. I think is for you know when he's playing the rhythm is is so solid and everybody is so free to just play. Yeah. Also, Bill Monroe, you know, if you watch Bill Monroe or listen to Bill Monroe stuff, it, it, and he would often dance during his set at some point. You know, he would he would um, sort of clog dance at some point on, on one of the songs. And um, just as a reminder, oh, yeah, this is, you know, it's, it's a dance tradition. And his, his whole movement and his, his uh, um, sense of timing has a, to me, has a dance feel to it and when you watch his right hand it's like he's he's even kind of dancing with the right hand yeah it feels like sometimes and and so i feel like there's a there's a compelling kind of rhythm in his playing that um i i i often use that as oh yeah that's you know that's the inspiration maybe for all of us where it started and um it feels really good yeah Sure. And it's interesting. I mean, the two guys like Sam Bush is one of Sam's biggest influences, you know, being Bill Monroe and to to see where he's taken that rhythm of Bill Monroe's and then made it kind of his own. And just like and his name has come up literally on I think this is boy, maybe the ninth or tenth interview I've done now. 
and Sam's name comes up every time <laughs> for good for good reason. Well, I noticed you're interviewing a lot of young players, and and it seems like he. I wonder, um, you know, a lot of players kind of started with him mm-hmm. since he kind of came up, let's say, in the early '70s. Um, and so for me, just starting out, you know, and I guess I started playing in 1980 or something like that. So he was very much the mandolin player of the day. He and David Grisman were really two big influences. And as younger players come up, I suppose, you know, maybe they'll, they'll start with Chris Steely. They're probably doing that now. That's where they start. But, you know, for Sam and Grisman, for sure, it starts with Monroe. Oh, yeah. Yeah, just thinking again about, like, a 10-year-old kid learning Punch Brothers first is just like this. <laughs> I can't even imagine wrapping my head around some of that stuff now. And, like, somebody just like, oh, yeah, this is, that's how right. it started. That's like, what's normal. Yeah, so, like, oh, my goodness. That's where it starts. It's normal mandolin playing. Yeah. <laughs> what's so, yeah, exactly. So what, um, what, what got you into mandolin? How did you, how did you start out? Did you, did you, you, you lived in Nashville for a while, but did you grow up in, in, in the East or? No, I grew up out West, um, Colorado and mostly Utah, actually. Salt Lake City, Utah is where I grew up, which of course is a huge bluegrass mecca. <laughs> right, right. Um, Hotbed. Not, there's really not much there, but right. there was enough of a bluegrass community that was really good, actually. And my brother, um, Rex, who is uh, 12 years older than me, taught me how to play the banjo at first. Um, we Basically, we had a lot of bluegrass records at the house. My dad was a huge fan of uh, Ralph Stanley and Bill Monroe and Platt and Scruggs. He had all those, you know, all the the big three, I think of them as, you know, yeah. Bill Monroe, Platt and Scruggs, and Stanley Brothers. He had all those LPs. So we'd hear that stuff around the house. Uh, my brother at some point just got interested in the banjo and taught himself how to play from, uh, actually from Pete Wernick's book. Oh, no kidding. Bluegrass banjo. Yeah. yeah, so he learned from that um, and became a really great, he kind of became, you know, the banjo player in, in Utah. He was in a really good bluegrass band. And I saw them play at a festival and said, I want to learn that. <laughs> and so he started teaching me banjo when I was 10. And um, and then mandolin somewhere. He he started getting into mandolin as well. And guitar and fiddle, he just wanted to learn everything, I guess. Yeah. You know? So he got into mandolin. And hearing the mandolin around the house then, <clears throat> um, there was something. I remember just thinking it sounded like... Um, like something a pirate would play, yeah, nice. uh, which, you know, as a kid, you like pirates. So, yeah, right. I don't know. There was just sort of this exotic kind of sound to it. And, and, uh, so I asked him to get me started on that. He, he showed me, um, you know, a few basics. And then I, if I'm already playing the banjo, I kind of had a sense, I suppose, of how the music was supposed to work. And, and so I just, you know, as long as he got me started with picking in a good way, then, um, I was off on my own, I guess, from that point. Yeah. And then did you um, start in bands right away, or did you kind of... Well, he... Yeah, actually, pretty early on, he encouraged me to get out, excuse me, and play... uh, We had a duo where he'd play uh, guitar and I'd play banjo. Excuse me. And we would go down to uh, the local... uh, 
mall, like you know, it was kind of this, old, not exactly a mall, but it's you know a shopping center, this old time shopping center called Trolley Square in Salt Lake City, mm-hmm. which was a cr- pretty cool old building, and we'd play there for tips when I was 11, and then um, we started playing like pizza parlors and stuff, oh, and yeah. uh, you know that type of thing, like everybody seemed like they did in that time, that era, um, and then uh, when I was 12. Uh, I got asked to join <laughs> join this group called the Pee Wee Pickers, which was a <laughs> kid band from uh, yeah, you know, from Utah, mostly Ogden, Utah, and they needed a banjo player, and so we were all between age like fifteen and ten um, when I joined, and we started. I, you know, I can't say enough about how helpful my brother and um, and Ted Shoup, who was the manager of the Pee Wee Pickers who just had all the energy in the world to, to get us out there. We even toured the nope. Southeast. No nope kidding. Went all the way from Utah to, uh, in the summer. Yeah. We spent, uh, I guess about a month on the road in, oh geez, 82. Wow. Uh, and we did a few summers in a row where we'd go to North Carolina and Kentucky and played Spartanburg, South Carolina once. Oh, did you really? Um, yeah, that was probably 83 or something like that. Wow. But, um, so I, you know, I finally got to see the, the, for me, it was getting out and seeing my heroes, like, you know, country gentlemen and Ralph Stanley and JD Crow and all these bands that I, that I got to see live and, you right. know, it's just normal where you are, you know, it's just, it was just normal festival, but for being from Utah, it was unbelievable getting to see all my heroes oh, all yeah. in one place. It seemed like, you know, weekend after weekend. Yeah. And, that's uh, amazing. So that was, that's what really probably got me got me going and inspired um was just getting out there and playing with you know playing with my peers yeah uh just i i can't say enough about how how grateful i am for all that and just the amount of playing that goes on at those festivals outside of your performance is it's another one of those yeah so i i was jamming right exactly jamming with guys a lot older than me and and uh there's a picture of me um actually showed up on Mandolin Cafe once of uh, me, Jan- well, me on stage with Snuffy Jenkins, who at the time was, uh, boy, he was in his 80s, I guess. Wow. He lived, he lived, he lived a long time, but I was 12 or 13. No kidding. And uh, we're standing next to each other with banjos, you know, on stage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that kind of thing was, you know, that was pretty cool. So. Yeah, man, for sure. I just, and, um... and it was playing, I wanted to play, you know, when you're a kid, you got time to practice, so. Uh, that helped. Yeah, man, that's if I had that time back, I played drums all my life up until mandolin, and I mean the oh, hours nice. and hours well, I that's spent. That's what Sam Bush did, right? Yeah, I think so. I think you think so. Yeah. First. I mean, yeah, I remember. So there you go. I remember studying with a biology book on a snare drum and doing like double bass drum patterns, just you know, probably driving my mom insane slowly, <laughs> you know, and. And right. you, know, you think back all that time, you're like, oh, man, I wish. I, I suppose it all worked its way in there rhythmically somewhere through the through my sure brain. Yeah. So now did you go to school for music as well afterwards, or did you just jump right into playing in bands? Well, yeah. I, well, I got to college and needed to decide what to do. I decided to do I wanted to study music theory, so. Cool. Um, I did end up doing, yeah, music theory and composition degree. Um in college, which was, you know, very different from playing bluegrass. And uh, <laughs> it, it was a good, I learned a lot and I, I was exposed to 
modern classical music, which was kind of a an eye opening thing. And um, but I couldn't study mandolin. There, you know, now there are a lot of colleges where you can study uh, the mandolin or banjo or you know bluegrass mm-hmm. instruments. But right. at that time, I studied jazz. Jazz guitar was the closest thing, so that was my instrument. Um, but I never got to be good at. at at jazz guitar really at all but I just, I just wanted to study composition oh yeah i bet before you got into um school was there like um when you first started getting like mandolin wise was there one of those albums that you really just kind of wore out one in particular where you're just like couldn't get enough of it for mandolin that's hard to say you know i i probably the biggest one was um the sam bush and alan mundy uh together again for the first time yeah I don't know if you know that record, I but do. that's that's been out of print. Yeah, it's been out of print a long time, and there's quite a few of us around my age, I guess, that really wore that one out. And I wish it were available now. Yeah. But Sam's um, mandolin playing and fiddle playing on that too. Um, I probably learned just about everything he played on that whole record on oh, both mandolin. And, I mean, I didn't play the fiddle really, but I, I learned mm-hmm. his fiddle stuff on the mandolin. Yeah, I bet. Uh, I love working that would probably be the up. one. Yeah. That's great. Was, yeah. was there like a tune that you nailed the first time where you were like, maybe even off that album where you're just like, I've done it. I've, I've, I've made it through this song. Um, probably Fork It Deer. And that was just fiddle playing. I did. I, that was. I that one sticks out as you know having and cattle in the cane too. The way he played fiddle on that. Oh yeah. Um, where I learned at the time, I can't remember it now, but I certainly play a lot of the same stuff that he did. The way I approached those tunes and um, yeah, I, that was pretty note for note for me. That's awesome. You know, it's funny you would say that because that reminds me of when I first started playing and I had, you know, like a bunch of, also bootlegs, but like recordings of mandolin. Um, camps or like mandolin jam sessions and there's one that you were on with i think tim o'brien and sam and everybody takes one and then they were asking everybody's favorite song to pick and you play fork a deer i remember that now and it was it's like a killer oh version. wow yeah i'll have to dig through my uh oh that must have been at uh great fart or what was Winterhawk at the time maybe yeah i'll have to dig through i'll play Not that in sure. the background if i can find it through all my uh i'm sure it's on a hard drive floating around here somewhere but <laughs> So then you, um, did you have anything that maybe wasn't bluegrassy that you were also, I guess you went into jazz guitar. Did you have like a favorite jazz guitarist when you were at school that you really dove into? Not really. You know, I should have. Um, but I, I was just, honestly, I was just doing that to skate by cause I needed an <laughs> instrument. And, um, so I, I wish I could say I listened to West Montgomery and I did, you know, sure, a lot, sure. but 
I didn't learn. I did. I just, I, that was not my focus for sure. Mm -hmm. So now looking back, I, you know, I wish I had spent more time with that when I'm out playing with, you know, with my trio, with Ross Martin, let's say on guitar, um, and Eric Turin on bass, and they have a, a strong jazz background. And if, it, if we go there or if the music wants to go in that harmonic direction, then I feel grossly unprepared and, and, uh, but there's still time, you know. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I mean, I'm still. I'm hoping, I I told myself when I moved to Nashville in, uh, I guess it was, '99. Uh -huh. I said I'm giving myself ten years to master bluegrass. Uh, master is a loose term, but sure, you sure. Know, to to get really good at bluegrass yeah. mandolin and get really good at jazz. I definitely got better at playing bluegrass in Nashville, and I was there for 17 years. And wow. by the end of that, I felt like. I'm still not where I want to be bluegrass wise, but you know, I certainly got better and jazz wise though. Uh, yeah, severely lacking. <laughs> oh, I don't know. So the, one album that I was surprised to hear you on, and I, I guess not surprised, but, um, the Vignola collective was, Oh wow. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, I had gotten that. Um, I don't even, I don't know how it came into my world, but the the mandolin playing on it was incredible. And I look at the credits and it's you. <laughs> and I'm like, right. Oh, thanks. Man. Yeah, that was a really fun record. Yeah, that's a great record. It's interesting to me too because um, my before I had gotten that record, I had already been listening to the, the your the first trio record that I had with you with um, the Phillips Flinner and Greer or Greer I forget yeah. the way they it's laid out on the title, but um, right. And what's so great is there's that both those CDs are filled with some of the most tasteful tonally rich sounding recordings. I was just like, oh my God, just like the feel and the vibe. And then... I'm hearing and I look at the credits and it's you and I'm like wow this guy is tearing it up too so how do you how uh, do you well, thanks. Well, yeah so how do you approach a session like that where it's um I mean I guess bluegrass is fast too but a lot of your recordings are kind of how we discussed a little bit ago about playing fast and and um maybe going more for for taste as opposed to playing fast and, and the feel of it and your recordings right. are all so good. I mean, you're, and I, I will dig into those in a little bit too. But right from your first, the first solo CD I have of yours, there the arrangements are great. It, and and there's like complicated playing, but it's not necessarily like ripping fast. Whereas stuff like Fly Swatter, uh -huh. Anna, uh, oh right, you know. <laughs> um. Well, the the Frank Vignola record was, um. So that was Frank's band at the time which were four you know basically jazz guys great yeah. players my gosh they were so good and frank is 
serious virtuoso. I mean, that guy is so good, and it was so much fun getting to play with him. He had me and Casey Dreesen come meet him in Roanoke, Virginia, to play a gig with their band. And I'd never met any of them other than Casey and I, you know, we knew each other, we're friends. But so we drove up there together and, and then we all drove to New York City after that and made that record in one day. He just put us all in one room and we cut. <laughs> yeah, that's a cut one. That was in one day. That was in one day. And that was I mean, we did maybe a maximum of three takes of any song, um, but uh, maybe not even that. I don't know. So we so, you know, we had the material ahead of time before we got to Roanoke to, to learn it. But um, um, yeah, Frank does that. He just sort of cranks it out wow. and he can do it in one take. So, you know, he was fine. Um, <laughs> but uh, it was pretty funny. We were all, I mean, since we were all in one room too, um, you know, it's not like you could go back and fix something. So it's pretty, pretty live. Right. Right. But uh, it was, yeah, that was a big, <laughs> it's just, yeah, it was a pretty, really fun and just, uh, I want to probably pretty exhausting at the time, but I can't was, imagine. Yeah, I still and I still I haven't played with Frank down a few years, but I, we we did some more stuff together for several years after that, and and I learned a lot from him about just professionalism and and musicianship, and and mm-hmm. I don't know, he's he's a really professional and just wonderful guy, and and uh, yeah, anyway. But I mean, the whole thing that so that was you know where we're just playing. Actually, did they do one tune of mine? Yeah, is it um, a minor idea? Is it was that the one? Well, yeah, that was. I just sent that to him as it was supposed to be a minor idea, like <laughs> an idea in a minor, and sure. he thought that was the title, so that's what it became. But um, that's awesome. Well, they they added. It's kind of funny. They added vocals to that later. They they wanted this to be kind of a hit. They were really going for making this be uh, not a hit record, but to really make a splash. Some, I don't know. They had a producer. They had a little bit of a machine behind them to mm-hmm. get it out there. And I don't know what happened, but they, they wanted my song to be like the single. Oh, wow, um, that's awesome. That's great. And so they, they had, they had take six, you know, the vocal jazz vocal group come in and, and overdub vocals. Oh, I didn't know okay. about this until it was done, but they, they came in later and they had this like, amazing but kind of smooth jazz vocal sound over the tune yeah and, yeah that uh, definitely smooth jazz would be a good way to to uh, it wasn't my choice but it, <laughs> it's kind of funny but they they wanted that to be a radio friendly thing and it never went anywhere but But, you know, the other stuff with the, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry, the uh, trio records or, um, I don't know, I feel like we've, we've um, I feel like the, the whole point of doing this, of playing music, I mean, what, is, why do we, you know, why do we do this? Why do we, so I, I mean, I try to think when, when going into 
a project? What do we want this to be? And I feel like, yeah. I don't know. I just, I feel like our, our pur- purpose really should be to, um, and this might be an ideal that doesn't really make sense or, 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 or work or really go anywhere. But I, I just feel like we ought to try to, to get the listener into a, um, like a different zone, you know, and, and just be playing stuff that I would hope can sort of, you know, when I, if the best music that I listen to, the best musical listening experiences, let's say, are those that can transport us, you know, and, right. and we, we forget about time. And I don't know if we've done anything close to that, but I feel like that should be our goal is to get, um, I don't want to say like escape from reality, but kind of get into that, whatever, I don't know. I think that's a good example, though. I think a lot of people do listen to, I think a lot of people do use music as that, and, and um, I guess like as a good distraction of you know, I think that's why I think music has such an emotional tie to it is people use it through difficult times in their lives a lot of time to, you know, how many times have you heard like an album, sure. an album saved my life or, or something along those lines. Yeah. And I think people totally. tie such a connection. Right. So that makes complete sense. And I think you're accomplishing it, especially with these, um, with these trio albums, the uh, music du jour, which is, um, before we get into that story though, I guess I want to, cause I do want to ask you a little bit more about that because the, 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 how you guys do that. Um, for each show is is an amazing story in itself. But wh- at what point after school did you decide? Um, all right, this is I'm going. Music is going to be for sure. I want to start playing music for yeah. for a living. Um, I think it was after you know while I was in college, I got asked to fill in on a Tim and Molly O'Brien uh, tour in Eastern Europe. They used to do these. USIA tours fairly often with, mm-hmm. you know, and, and Tim was hooked into that and, and, uh, they needed a guitar player for the tour and somehow my name came up and, uh, I was the one that was able to do it. <laughs> so I did it. It was a month long <laughs> tour. Right. And so it was Tim and Molly who were both, I mean, we know Tim O'Brien, yeah. you know, as a great mandolin player and musician and his sister molly is one of the best singers i've ever met oh cool um, <clears throat> where she's not just a singer she's a musician of a really high order and uh mark schatz was on bass so oh, it's, you know three top-notch musicians and me at age 22 i think um and uh you know it was it was definitely a high learning curve for me on that one but after that i thought I just I think that re-inspired me to to maybe stay with this for a living, and then soon after that I was on the road uh, with a band called Sugar Beat with Tony Furtado, and I went from being you know a local Salt Lake City musician to being out on the road around the country and not making any money. I was making good money in Salt Lake, probably playing local gigs, <laughs> sure. certainly making nothing but having a blast. Right, and right. That's, that was like I I love to travel and um. And, and you know, playing music with with friends, and it's it, uh, I guess by my early twenties, it was pretty clear that I, I wouldn't be happy if I didn't pursue this. Sure. And so Nashville, that was was the Tim O'Brien pre Nashville move, or was it post Nashville move? It was pre Nashville by a ways. Okay. Um, yeah, Tim was still living in Colorado at that time. Oh, okay. Um, and he moved to Nashville, I guess before I did, but not too long before. But I. 
I just, yeah, Nashville just felt like, um, well, at some point, I guess it, it's what you do. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And it was great. Yeah, that's awesome. And so then um, you do your first, do you do your first solo CD before the uh, the, the first trail with uh, David Greer and Todd Phillips? Or do you do the, how does that all fall in when you start putting out these releases? So the first one I did was The View From Here, mm-hmm. which was Todd Phillips producing and David played guitar. Awesome. And so it, that was like 90, 97, 98, somewhere in there that we did those 98, 97 to 99, somewhere in there. Yeah. And, and, exactly. and, yeah. and both of those, I, both those CDs are so good. Um, just oh, the, the covers. The, uh, just it's got that, a lot to do with Todd. <laughs> no, no, no kidding. Well, he was, he, he was the primary arranger and producer and even engineer on that trio one. Oh, so, no kidding. Wow. Well, he wasn't the engineer, but he mixed it. Yeah, so he knows what he's doing for sure. <laughs> so you meet, so you meet those guys and start playing, and then and then put out some great things, and then you you put to, you put out a a band, the quartet, was or the quintet, Matt Flinner quintet, quartet, quartet, right. yeah. yeah. So it, it, what was the uh, that's that's got a real John Schofield vibe to me almost. Oh. It sounds like a. Uh, like something that he would have put out. It's great. I love it. And what was it like to? to... That's great because that's we we were listening so much to John Schofield during the recording of that. Were you really? <laughs> that makes it. We were. We listened to the record bump of his. Yeah, that's what exactly so what it remind me of. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that. Well, that was a group. I mean, I was still living out west, and my parents still lived in Salt Lake City, um, and I was living in Jackson, Wyoming. So I'd get down to Salt Lake a lot, and both the guitar player, Gowan Matthews, and the bass player, uh, Sam Bevan, were living in Salt Lake at that time. And we, I think Gowan and I ended up on a gig together once, and we said, hey, let's get together and play some more. And so we ended up forming this band. Actually, Open for the Violent Femmes. Oh, did you really? With the singer-songwriter, uh, me and Gowan, and, and they got Sam on bass, and then we were opening with this guy named John Cavanaugh out in uh, Salt Lake. And uh, so Sam and Gowan and I said, let's book some gigs. So we got a drummer, and we went out and started playing. And so it just evolved into that record. 
a couple years later, I guess. But um, definitely, I don't know. It was fun to try um, that sort of jazz influence that, you know, I've never felt like a jazz player, but I certainly listened to it a lot. And, mm-hmm. and, um, uh, and it was, we were just having a lot of fun playing this music and, you know, Gallon wrote some tunes, I wrote some tunes and Sam brought a couple in and we had Aaron Johnston on drums for the record and for a lot of our tours who was, you know, I think one of the best drummers. Oh, the drums are great out there. Yeah. Great feel. He's a great musician. Yeah. uh, So anyway, yeah. So that was a lot of people said, Oh, you really lost your way with that one. (laughs) Uh. (laughs) Really? You know, know, like, what are you thinking doing this electric thing? I feel like it's one of my favorite things that I got to do because, I don't know, there was just... The thing about it is that when you're playing bluegrass, there's the temptation to want to fill space constantly. There's that... We have that, that sort of need to keep the drive going and keep the tempo up and keep pushing and, and putting more notes in there. I'm not saying we all do that, but there's there's just that sort of want to to fill up a bunch of space and sure. with, with jazz it can be the opposite where space is is just more embraced and, and um also well for me a big influence miles davis too like listening to the way he would phrase things oh that's great um, to hear i um i literally just had this conversation on sunday about miles davis and how um i i've for me, like what, like jazz trumpet is really cool to try to learn those licks on mandolin. I think like the, the oh yeah, it's some of my favorite stuff to uh to work on. And we had did uh um oh my gosh, now I can't think of which Miles Davis song it was on Sunday during the ceremony, like for the pre music. And I'm like, oh, uh-huh. this is this is great. I love you know his stuff falls right into the like mandolin player's fingers. I think the phrasing and the uh the you know like the like you, the the tremolo for the longer notes just seemed to fit well. That's great yep. to hear you say that, man. Yeah. Well, and his phrasing, his arranging and his phrasing to me were I think really profound and and, um, and when you listen to his phrasing, it's always very I don't know, I don't say deliberate, but it's very um, he, he, he often avoids the you know, he'll avoid the tonic, he'll avoid resolving things in an obvious way, he'll avoid, um, but he's, but he's, at the same time, he's, you know, I think really, at the bottom of it, he's just trying to express himself, and he's not trying to impress anybody, he's just, he's, it's all soul, I think, in his playing. ability to well to just play when when i guess when necessary or something i don't know mm-hmm. there's just so much space and it depends you know from tune to tune it's just different but i mean there's so much space in his playing quite often and that what that can do is is really 
grab the listener in a different way where they're wondering what's next and and um you can create this kind of suspense and in bluegrass it's just it's not that many players that will you know david grisman uses it i think mm-hmm. and what a brilliant arranger he is oh you know, for sure what a brilliant composer arranger and the way he phrases too is actually another influence on me for sure big time and i don't think anybody phrases like he does on the mandolin and i think you know i know he's listened to miles as well and, and jazz but um so just that sense of being able to let time kind of be suspended and not be trying to play a bunch of stuff. Right, right. So great, you know, and, and let, let the phrases really count when you play them as opposed to just playing to fill space. I'm not saying that, I mean, that's just, that's the temptation we have in bluegrass. Sure. Is to fill space for the sake of filling space. Oh, absolutely. So this was kind of the, this was hopefully the opposite of that. Well, it was great. And I love that. You know, yeah, absolutely. Like Me too. So going into arranging and composing now, let's talk a little bit about the, uh, the Music Du Jour project. that come about because it's 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 uh let's can you talk talk a little bit about it and and how it came up because it, to me it's just like so interesting um well it was uh i i, I can't remember exactly i mean we start in i guess it was, we had a tour in uh in 06 way back in 06 um just this short five-day tour me and ross martin and eric Tureen. And it was the first time the three of us had done gigs together. I think I, I, I'm partly, I think it was just curiosity to see what would happen. I have a hard time uh, finishing tunes. Often I'd have notebooks full of ideas and, or little recorded snippets and, Oh, that'd make a good B section, but then I could never write the A section or mm-hmm. whatever. Sure. And it just seemed like finishing tunes was really difficult for me. And um, I think it was partly also, you know, speaking of Miles Davis on the kind of blue record, it talks about, um, I forget how, what the context was, but Bill Evans talks about this, um, uh, Japanese style of, is it calligraphy or painting where you're, you basically, uh, have one shot at it and and it's all in the moment and, and you, you know, it's not meant to be perfect. It's just, and to be an expression of the moment. And that's, that's how he saw that kind of blue record was these sort of sketches mm-hmm. that they just played, um, you know, I suppose a time or two in the studio. And then what they had was what they got and they left it at that. And of course, you know, we know that's his probably most famous record, but the, but the idea of just letting something be not having to be perfect, but let it be an expression of that day and right. that moment and let it be for one thing, just, be finished you know and so we gave ourselves initially i thought we'd write a whole set of music so we'd each contribute like three tunes and so i the first day i tried to write three tunes and that just i wrote three really mediocre tunes but <laughs> from that point on we we did one tune each and you just had to write them that day and so the idea was that maybe uh 
hopefully you would be inspired by um, something about the uniqueness of that day and, and our surround. You know, we were out on the road, mm-hmm. mostly in Colorado, and so you know, beautiful surroundings. Maybe you're inspired by something about your surroundings or just whatever um, happened to you that day. And every day is different, and so maybe every day a tune can come of this unique day's experience. And um, we just had to finish them by, I forget if we gave ourselves a deadline. We needed to play them on the set, though, that night on the show, and uh, so we'd have to rehearse, and I think we tried to be done by 5 p.m. or something like that. So that's three songs. So anyway, that's how it started. That's three songs, one from each guy, (laughs) brand new every day. For the show that night. Oh, and they were, yeah. So we learned how to rehearse efficiently over time. Yeah. But the first week, uh, well, it turned out better than we thought. You know, there actually were at least two or three tunes that we ended up recording just from that first week. Mm-hmm. And but then we kept, we actually didn't have any gigs um, again until 08. And we said, let's do this. And so we started uh, doing it on almost every gig. And um, it turned, it just was, not what we expected. I mean, it just turned out to be way better than anything we imagined. And, and uh, you know, of course, that doesn't mean that every tune is good, but if sure. you get one out of ten that's good, I figure that's, you know, that, it's, that's great. Oh, yeah. Plus, you're, like, using the muscle. You know what I mean? Like, you're writing and writing, and even if it's, you know, it's just that little bit, yeah. you know, even if you get a phrase out of it that makes it to something long-term eventually, and that's yeah. the only thing out of a whole song, what a, what a, great, <laughs> what a great thing. Yep. Wow. So, and then, uh, do you guys still do those tours? Then we kept with... track of how many gigs we've done. Sorry. Do you guys still do these the the du jour tours then, where you, with this whole concept? Um. Yeah. We we have we kind of have laid off it for the last year. We did we did one about a month ago, but we um we did a let's see. At some point, we started incorporating guests into the picture, and so we would write for a, a guest. Oh wow. Uh, who was a willing guinea pig um, <laughs> for that show, you know, and so they would be, we'd say, okay, you're going to learn three tunes, maybe like an hour or two before the show that we'll write with you in mind. And, and we did that with, uh, I don't know, something like 30 different, maybe close to 30 different guests. We, wow. And we're trying to finish up a record of, of uh, stuff from those uh, gigs. So we've got, you know, 10 different guests. So we've got Sam Bush on a, on a well we actually recorded all three tunes that we wrote for him and we'll put one on the cd and Stuart duncan and tony trishka and you know some of our heroes and yeah and, uh, wow so once that gets done maybe we'll get back out there and, and start doing some more of this du jour thing i don't know i mean it's it kind of uh it feels like well maybe we should see what what would be next as far as what you know a different approach to writing but it's it's a great exercise though to just keep challenging yourself and growing hopefully as a composer sure that's the and i think we all did grow from it you know do all three of you now you have a background in in like obviously uh, trans, transcribing and writing do do the other guys as well or you know is everything written mm-hmm. on a piece of paper and then make it a little bit easier as far as that goes or yeah we got to have it written out luckily sure. we all read well enough to i don't know i can't call myself a great sight reader i got better at sight reading for sure but um, both Ross Martin and Eric Tureen have a, you know, like I said, a jazz background mm-hmm. and, and um, we're used to writing out lead sheets and, sure. and uh, 
So we'd at least have a lead sheet, if not, you know, sometimes specific parts for all three instruments for the, at least for the head, you know, right, right. have sometimes it just depends on how specific you want to be with your texture. But, um, sometimes it would just be a lead sheet that we'd play the melody and then take solos and come back to the melody. So it just depends on the tune. Sure. But yeah, they were all, they were, everybody could read well enough that you got to have that or just to, to rely on, on stage. Oh, I bet. Or, or we'd be sunk. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you've done a lot of transcription work, correct? Like you've, uh, was, um, you, yeah, I had done in the past. Yeah. Yeah. And you actually just, you, the bluegrass real book, I believe, did you, did you put that out or put that together? <laughs> I put that together for Hal Leonard, the real bluegrass book. Yeah, yeah, the real bluegrass book. Yeah, and then you've also done like um, some like a Mike Marshall book, the and a Todd Phillips. Uh, did you do the Todd Phillips book? I think so. I I know I did. I, I I'm not sure what came out of that. Sure. But yeah. And, uh, so. Yeah. So I'm how trying do you, to do my own stuff now? Yeah. <laughs> so so how do you approach approach that for people who listen in and. You know, like it's a big thing is learning songs or working on licks. How do you approach, um, like, if you were to sit down today and work on a tune, what would be, what would you do to to do that? To transcribe? Yeah, yeah. Like, if you're just gonna um, knock out a song today that you were like, oh, I've been wanting to work on this one. Right. Um, well, I I I would uh, just play the. The, the tune over I mean here's the thing is mm-hmm. now that they, now we have these tools right like right. the amazing slowdowner yeah and I had a program called transcribe and I but you know having grown up as a kid listening to LPs and just playing the LP and putting the needle on it in the spot over and over and over again um, I I I kind of resisted the amazing slowdowner I know that's but um now we have no excuse. We should be able to figure this <laughs> right, stuff right. out note for note. But no, I, I just would uh, try to get a phrase. Mm-hmm. And if I can't get the phrase, I would stop as soon as I got to that note that I couldn't figure Like this, say the first note of the phrase, I can't figure out what it is. Mm-hmm. Wait for the CD to get to that hit stop as soon as that note plays. And hopefully that note sticks out in my ear, you know, sure. as being clear what it is. And then from that point... Um, you know, some players you get familiar with how they phrase, so it can go a little more quickly. But um, yeah, it, sometimes it would be literally note by note, and that's as you do it more. Yeah, I'm sure you know this. You know, you you get you get better at it. And yeah, you get, especially if, as you learning the language of bluegrass or old time, or uh, for me less so with jazz. But being able to, you know, I transcribe some Miles Davis. As you get familiar with his phrasing, you can start to fill in some of the blanks a little bit. So, right. And even if you don't, here's the thing too. If you're learning, if you're doing this for a book, you want to get it right. Mm-hmm. But if you're doing this to uh, learn somebody's solo, <clears throat> you don't need to get it right. I don't think that's that important. I think you want to get the essence of it. And um, I, I can't tell you how many Alan Mundy solos I learned as a kid on the banjo. <laughs> where I couldn't quite figure it out because it was so complex and so intricate, but I found a way to play it anyway. And it had enough of the notes in there that it was his tune and close to his solo. And, uh, but I could play it. Yeah. Well, I think that's what defines, ends up defining you as a player too. I mean, that's when Mm -hmm. you're taking something by Monday and putting your spin on it, you know, and maybe it's because you couldn't learn it exactly like that, but eventually you're taking it and making it your own and it's becoming you. 
eventually it becomes your voice. Yeah. yeah. At the time it was just a temporary sort of bandaid, but yeah, that's, that's the thing is you, you know, you don't want to imitate someone. Yeah, it's great to imitate someone exactly when you're learning. Sure. Actually, I think that's a valuable thing. And then at some point your, your musical choices just reflect, you know, what you like. Speaking of valuable things, um, the modern mandolin quartet was nominated for a valuable thing, right? You guys were nominated for a Grammy award, correct? Yeah, right. How amazing is that? What's 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 it like to? Uh... It was great. We got to go to the Grammys. Yeah, I was gonna say. So, did you go to the actual Grammy ceremony? We did. Wow. Yeah, we went. Um, and uh, Paul Binkley was still with us at the time. He he passed away a, f- a couple years later, unfortunately. Yeah. But he, we all went, and um, uh, you know, they have the the, the pre ceremony, uh, which is what we were part of. Mm-hmm. Well, we were nominated. We weren't part of it because we didn't win. But we we went, and uh, um, then the actual ceremony was really a spectacle, and it was it was cool to see it. Was, I can see why. Uh, you know, some people I think make make albums deliberately to try to get nominated just so they can go to the big party. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> I don't know. I thought, what could I do to get nominated? Man, this would be fun to do again. Yeah. Oh man, but, that's uh, awesome. It was, yeah, it was really, it was pretty cool. I can't imagine. I um, uh, Noam Pekilny had a great when they won this last year. I believe it was. His acceptance speech. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you saw it or not, but it's it's pretty no, hilarious, man. And um, he had posted some stuff on like Twitter, I think, beforehand of like you know basically just two of them were going because they were tired of losing in person, and <laughs> you know, and oh, yeah. uh, and then they it was just right. great. It's, the guy's sense of humor is so fantastic as it is. Um, yeah, yeah. So that was pretty great. So, yeah, and there's I mean again that's a pretty exclusive club to go to. So I'm glad you went to the ceremony and got to be a big part of that because you know that's amazing. Yeah, it could be a one once in a lifetime thing. Yeah, we soaked it. That's great. So, do you mind if we get nerdy and talk a little gear real quick? Okay, sure. Yeah. So, what's your um, what's your main what's your main instrument? Oh, I thought you said beer. Not oh, gear. beer. Oh, yeah. We'll get to the beer too. Beer. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Um, gear. Yeah. Gear. Main instrument. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, so yeah, my I've got a Gilchrist that I've had. It's a '93, which I got back in '93, and uh, so that's that's the mandolin I've played ever since then. And that's that's mainly it. I've got an old Gibson A4 from 1924 mm-hmm. that I that I love as well. But it's just a different beast, you know. Sure. More of a Norman Blake kind of feel is what I think of with that one. But, sure, sure. Uh, yeah. What type of um? What type of pick do you use? Uh, well, I I had been using a Dunlop Jazz Tone pick mm-hmm. um, until the end of last year. Daryl Anger brought me some picks and said, here, I don't need these. You should try them out. They're Dunlop Flow, they're called. Dunlop Flow, huh? And uh, he was listening to me, A, B, between the flow and my old pick, and he goes, yeah, this this one sounds better. Oh, <laughs> And he was right. So I'm now on the Dunlop Flow. No kidding. So, That's yeah, awesome. It's just a cheap pick. You know, they're mm-hmm. great, though. I really like the, I, I, I may still go for the blue chip, but it's, yeah, I just like these the feel of these and used to them more, you know. Sure, sure. What's are, are they so, like a uh, what size are they? Are they a bigger size, smaller size, or? This would be a two millimeter, and I think the jazz tone was similar. It didn't say how thick they were. Gotcha. The jazz tone, but yeah, about two about two millimeter. Gotcha. And you have a great touch. You have a very. I I've, I've never seen you play live in person, but I would. It, 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 quiet. You're not alone. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. 
Oh my gosh. Um, it, it, it seems like you have a pretty light touch though. Is that safe to, is that safe to say? Um, well, I don't know. I, I probably, but I, compared to today's players, it doesn't seem that way, sure. but yeah. Um, Somewhere in the middle. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's so great. It's it, it, your picking, your right hand technique. It looks so efficient. Like it's something to strive for. I think. Like whenever I see a video of you playing, I'm just like, man, I have so much more work to do. <laughs> you know, like how did you? Um, um... It's I always have more work to do. I, you know, I watched Roland White a lot as a kid, and mm-hmm. that to me was the model of efficiency in playing. And I sure. still think he's such a beautiful player. And and just watching his right hand was. Uh, and they're so minimal in the motion. So I'm yeah. still, I don't know, that's just an ongoing thing, you know, trying mm-hmm. to get get that to to work better, but hopefully efficient, more and more efficient. Yeah, and you play mic'd when you play live? Yes, I, I won't plug in unless it's really necessary. Sure. Yeah, what type of, do you drummer, have a, perhaps, you know. Yeah, what type of mic do you use when you play live? Um, you know, it's just usually... An SM57 is fine. I, mm-hmm. I sometimes travel with an AKG C1000, which is a bigger diaphragm condenser mic. But, sure. Um, uh, nothing really fancy usually. Mm-hmm. How about recording-wise when you record? Do you have like, do you have like, this is what I use, or is it just kind of depending on the studio? Or um, I'll often bring a pair of, I've got some old Neumann KM85s oh, that okay. I bring with me. That, nice. And on any trio record or, you know, yeah. record of mine, I use those. I started using those on the, quartet jazz record and oh, okay. then i bought a pair oh nice and uh so that's what i've used ever since then yeah i mean again not to discount the tone is in your hands but your your recordings sound uh, they sound great i mean i love well, i love the tone on all your all your recordings and so uh, you know again it's always a combination of stuff but for sure your your technique so uh, yeah good stuff man and um so and then you also do You've got the online courses now that you offer on your website. Mm-hmm. And so how about a little for people who might not be familiar with that, kind of what those are about? Um, that's a, I'll, I'll design like a, a course. Mm-hmm. I feel like, um, well, we'll have, let, let's say like an eight week long course. Mm-hmm. And so in the fall, I've got some coming up that are sort of fiddle tune based, like a fiddle tunes 101 and an advanced fiddle tunes, and then an old-time fiddled Appalachian fiddle tunes for mandolin, and um, just trying to, you know, get people to uh, work on technique and some of the fundamentals, like we said, you know, but with mm-hmm. fiddle tunes as a, you know, a fun thing to be learning. Well, I've, all I did was learn tunes when I was a kid, you know, I didn't work on exercises, it was mostly just tunes, and so I, um, well, have tunes is the central focus of it, but always thinking of things we can do to improve our picking technique and maybe some fingering exercises or some scale or arpeggio exercises just to get better at improv. Mm-hmm. So with fiddle tunes, I feel like we can learn how to improvise. Um, so we'll be doing more of that with the advanced class. And then like the Appalachian class will be about tone as much as anything and getting those open strings as a drone and yeah. and just how to approach playing old time music with other people. But So it just it varies from you know quarter to quarter of the year what mm-hmm kind of what uh, style I try to throw in there. and But it, the nice thing is it's a reg- it's live, but we record the sessions too. So oh, cool. if, if people can't make it to the live session, they can watch it later. But I think by having it live, I've noticed that people tend to show up. Yeah. Um, so if it's like Monday night and then we have a review session on Saturday morning. And oh, cool. people, you know, they show up 
pretty regularly. And just by showing up, you, you're guaranteed to be playing your mandolin twice a week. Right, right. Um, and I think they're motivated to practice for the next session because they want to kind of keep up with the with the class. And uh, we can't hear each other. I mean, I can I can't hear or see my students. Mm-hmm. But they they see and hear me, and unless they choose to be heard, I can unmute their mic and they can ask questions. So it's very interactive, as interactive as they want to be. Sure. Or they just use a chat window to ask questions. So it's like a live workshop every, you know, twice a week. And yeah. um, but I think just the regularity of that has been really effective in getting people to um, practice more regularly. And I've noticed, you know, with those that I've been able to see in person or just or get, you know, MP3s from or whatever, uh, if they send them in for feedback, then I, I've, I've noticed some real improvement in a lot of the players. And, um, you know, there are a lot of great options, though, online, for sure, for learning. It's amazing what's out there these days. Sure. But what I like about this one is that, that it does get people just showing up and playing. And so I think improvement has been um, noticeable, mm-hmm. maybe more so than if you just could put it off and put it off and put it off as long as you want to. Right. So it's been great. That's, yeah. yeah. So one of the segments that seems to be getting a lot of really good feedback in the, I mean, and only two episodes have gone live since we've done this, but it's been one of the things I've been getting the most emails about is I, I have a theory um, that uh, 10 minutes a day of focused practice is better than noodling for hours, you know, just mindlessly. And so one of the things I try to ask everybody on this is to try to get somebody to pick up here to, if you to recommend one thing to, just so for somebody to pick up the mandolin today for 10 minutes. And again, my, my theory is twofold is one, you're going to be focused for 10 minutes and you're going to get more out of it. And two is it almost always is going to turn into more than 10 minutes. You're going to, even if it's 15 minutes, I've had times where I'm like, come home from a gig and I'm like, oh, I screwed up this lick. And then next thing I know, two hours later, I'm still you know, sitting on the couch <laughs> playing mandolin, yeah. Yeah. you know, but, but focus and like getting through it. Right. Um, what is something that maybe you right. would recommend for somebody to do? If you were to just say, if you were to do it right now for 10 minutes, this is what I would recommend. I would either, let's say, I mean, there's so many things you could do. And sure. I think if it's focused, that's what you said, you know, that's important. Um, so you could play a tune with a metronome, you know, and, and start out at 40 beats per minute. I tell people 40 beats per minute, make that the half note and then play along with that and then speed it up to, if you only have 10 minutes, let's say speed it up to 48 and then 56 and go up like that. Mm-hmm. Um, or, and just focus on your picking hand being relaxed. You know, just if it, it's got to be a tune, you know, well, so you can focus on the picking hand. I think 10 minutes a day spent on where you start at least, and you probably will spend the whole 10 minutes being aware of that picking hand and whether it's mm-hmm. relaxed and whether you're sounding big, you know, whether your tone is big or whether it's, light sure. and you want to play with with full tone because basically where, where we freeze up is when we're playing with other people in a jam session or in a gig or whatever and if your hand locks up it's because you're trying to play faster or louder than you're normally practicing at. right um, so but i say you got to start slow when you practice and so just start slow mm-hmm. and try to play with that those down picks you want those to be effortless and but you want them to sound big do you have a another favorite? thing would be like double stops Sorry. Oh, yeah. No, no, go ahead. Double steps. I was going to say, do you have oh, a another, favorite? Another, picking... I, I... Like a... Like a favorite exercise? picking exercise? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, actually, I was going to say double stops as a picking exercise. Oh, yeah. Sound really, really helpful. Oh, cool. So, I'll if, like have some G, let's say just G double stops, where mm-hmm. you start with your fourth fret on your fourth string and then the open D, 
and then you go, and then my students are going to say, oh, here he goes again. <laughs> um, and then like seventh fret on the G string, fifth fret on the D string, and go through those G double stops until you get up pretty high on the neck. But mm-hmm. play them like, you know, one and two and three and four and down, up, down, up, down, up, down, up for each one. And really try to, again, sound full, loud, um, and also be really relaxed and do that with the metronome too. I think that's, and there are other picking exercises that I'll teach that are a little bit more, you know, crossing the strings and stuff like that. But I found that like the double stops can really get you warmed up in a, um, I don't know, just in a a really good way where um, you're just focusing on playing two, the same two strings back and forth and back and forth and trying to get the down and the up to sound, you know, the same, right. even as each other. And, and uh, um, so I actually kind of prefer that as a picking exercise. And I've, I've, you know, like I said, my students are probably sick of me saying this, <laughs> but I, I've, I've taught it over and over again. I still sure. work on it at home as a, as a warm-up. I think it's great. Yeah, that's awesome. That's a great one. Do you, are those, are your courses, are they, do you have like a backlog online that people can sign up to for your older ones? Or is it just like the current the current courses when they when they go live just the current ones mm-hmm. i mean the the thing is i've been hesitant to have the the back ones available because so much stuff gets shared for free oh and, sure you know i put i put a lot of work into this and um, absolutely but i go for pat for students that you know we have a community in this this uh in my program i feel like we've got a, a really good community of folks that mm-hmm. have kind of gotten to know each other a little bit over five or six years and, nice. uh, and then there are new folks coming in all the time and so i there's a trust built up there and i'll, I'll offer co- courses to to past students but i haven't i'm gonna at some point i'll have um something i hope available for just the general public in like a bluegrass man you know basic bluegrass mandolin style and, yeah. and so just working on getting that together oh awesome we'll see when that when that's open yeah yeah that's a great well let me know when that goes live too because i'll be sure to to put it out there on the uh on my social media stuff and podcast as well. So. Oh, that'd be great. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely, man. All right, now let's get to the beer. <laughs> okay, that's good because I've been drinking the whole time. Yeah, me too. Talking, uh, so. <laughs> 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 oh, so do you have um? So obviously, when we got on the phone, you're like, oh, I like beer, so this is good. So do you have like a uh, favorite style of beer that you like, or a favorite brand, or a brewery, or? Well, I'm I'm living in Vermont, mm-hmm. and there's a Vermont style. Um, you know, the IPA is big up here and sure. I just, so I, I just so happen to like that. And, yeah. and, uh, Vermont seems to be ground zero. And, and, um, so there are a couple of famous breweries up here that, uh, you can only get their beer up here. Like the alchemist makes heady topper. And that's, that was one of my favorites for heady still is, yeah. um, you know, I'm trying to think what you can get outside of here. You know, there's there's one called the Burlington Beer Company that I think is is getting uh, at least down to New York City and maybe God, maybe they've gotten out to Colorado now. I don't know, but um, yeah, any IPA by the Burlington Beer Company and uh, <laughs> uh, if you get me started, see we could go on. No, that's all right. There's a, there's one near my house here called Foley Brothers uh, that's just top notch. So yeah, I you know. That's uh, um, Vermont is kind of just and it has an embarrassment of riches when it comes to IPAs and and beer in general. I think it's the highest per capita uh, in in you know microbreweries no in kidding. the country, but it's highest per capita in lots of stuff because the population is low. But right, right. Uh, but yeah, it's it's pretty. Uh, 
we're kind of filthy rich with beers up here. That's awesome. Well, I definitely want one of my goals doing this too is to start doing some brewery tours with my band and get out of town a little bit and start kind of meshing the worlds of breweries and, and mandolin things and try to do even like some mandolin meetups where people can come prior and we can hang out and you know people can play each other's yeah. mandolins try different picks and then have my band do a set or two afterwards or that's that that's the dream of of doing this here too oh, is yeah. to merge my two yeah, worlds come up here i would yeah, yeah i would love to do that here. man i'll have to get some recommendations of some places uh once we get off here that you would recommend trying to uh to play at because definitely i can help you with that yeah yeah that would be great man well matt Thank you so much for doing this podcast. I really, I, I, I'm a big fan and I have been for years and to be able to talk to you and, and pick your brain about some stuff has been, has been awesome. I really, really appreciate it. Well, thanks Dan for having me on. It's been great to talk to you and I am really glad to hear that the uh, podcast is off to such a great start. So yeah, knock on wood. Oh, thanks so much, man. Yeah. Thank you. There you have it. What a great guy. Matt Flinner. Thanks again, Matt, for doing it. Be sure to go to mattflinner.com. Check out his courses, his books, his CDs. Go see him live. Uh, thanks so much for everybody listening, and we'll talk to you next week with my guest, Jake Jolliffe. Cheers, everybody. Hope you guys have yourselves a fantastic week. Do some picking. <laughs>